0: The redeemed of the Lord is one of the most powerful names given to the people of God in his word. In fact, it is so profound and so full of revelation, it's going to take three episodes for us to cover all the important territory. And I guarantee you, by the time you finish this study, your life will be miraculously transformed and supernaturally empowered. Let's get into it now.
1: Here in my
0: study, where I've got over a thousand books, I love to read, and I love knowledge. I love wisdom. I have a pillow on one of the chairs with a statement woven into it that I want to share with you at the beginning of this podcast. It says, to teach is to touch a life forever. And I know my life has been touched, not only touched, but transformed by the revelation I'm going to share with you on this episode and the next two episodes of Discover Your Spiritual Identity, our calling to be the redeemed of the Lord. And I pray that it not only touches your life, but changes your life in a very dramatic and powerful way. Let's go to the scripture. Psalm 107 verses 1 and 2 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy. There are so many beautiful nuggets of truth, like nuggets of gold spiritually, that will enrich us when we dig into those two verses. First of all, it says, give thanks to the Lord. Did you know in Old English, Certainly not how we use it today, but in ancient times, the word thank was the past tense of the word think, just like you drink today and drank yesterday, or maybe you stink today and stank yesterday. I say that tongue in cheek. In like manner, you think today and you thank yesterday. That's how it was used. But somehow those two words took different roads of meaning. However, they are still related because dearly beloved, if we do not think, we will not think. And something we need to be very thoughtful about is the power of this revelation of redemption that has come forth from the Word of God into our lives. It is so incredibly influential spiritually. It changes you inside when you realize, I've been redeemed give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. That's a reference back to the first verse, because if there are any people anywhere in the entire world that know God is good, that know his mercy endures forever, and should be thankful, it is the redeemed of the Lord. Now, verse 2 says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. I like the choice of the word let. And it reminds me of Genesis chapter one, where the creation is coming into existence. And God starts off by saying, let there be light. Notice he did not say, I command light to come into existence. He said, let it be as if it was already churning and turning and burning inside of him and looking for a release and then it burst into existence. Hallelujah. Well, in like manner, it says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, because it's not hard for you and I to make declarations of faith in this area, because it's already churning and burning inside of us and wanting to be released in the form of words. And words are very powerful. To say so is a very needful thing, because as you affirm truths in the scripture, you draw them from the realm of the conceptual into the realm of the actual. There is a great power in confession. That's why the Bible says death and life are in the power of the tongue. And the Hebrew word translated power is a word that literally means the open hand. Now that sounds like a disconnect, doesn't it? But it's very connected because whatever you speak, you should open your hand to receive in a spiritual sense. So if we declare our redemption rights, lift your hand up to receive them because death and life are in the open hand of the tongue. So we're going to learn some things that we can declare so that they can be manifested more fully, more completely in our lives. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed in the hand of the enemy. When I first got saved 50 years ago, I thought that was the past tense, and when I shared testimonies involving this scripture, I would say that's in the past tense, so a past tense fact is a present tense possession, which was a good faith-building statement. But about 35 years ago, I had a dear pastor friend of mine who happened to be a professor of English also come up to me and correct me. He said, that's not the past tense. I looked at him wide-eyed. I said, that's not the past tense. Well, what isn't? He said, that's the present perfect tense. I said, I've been out of high school long enough to conveniently forget that terminology. I said, please remind me. He said, the present perfect tense is something that happens in the past but continues to the present and most likely will continue on into the future. My spirit started soaring when he said that because I realized, yes, our redemption was purchased in the past, but it continues to the present and will continue on into the future. And so it's like a rainbow of promise over our lives from the past to the present to the future. Now, when the people of the Old Testament quoted this psalm, they meant something a little different than when you and I quote the psalm, or at least they relate to it in a different way. They would connect in their minds the redemption that took place in Egypt, and they would rehearse how God did that supernatural thing of delivering them from the bondage they were in in the land of Egypt as a way of saying, if God did it, then he can do it again. Whatever God has done, he's still capable of doing something on the same level of power and might and miraculous manifestation. That's really what you're saying, because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So they would relate back to the tremendous night where a redemption price was paid for the Israelite people that involved the slaughter of lambs. There was a lamb for a household. Every Israeli household slaughtered a lamb and put the blood on the upper doorposts and the two side posts. I tell people that's the greatest mass prophecy that's ever been given because unknown to them, when they dipped the hyssop in lamb blood and applied it to their homes, to the door of their homes, They didn't know it, but they were making the sign of the cross and prophesying of a greater lamb to come who would redeem us on a much higher level. But that night, because of that blood covering, the price of blood that was shed, they were protected in their homes when the destroyer went through the land of Egypt. And then, of course, what followed they left the land of egypt they were thrust out by pharaoh god opened the red sea miraculously they passed through it came crashing in on the enemy and they went on into the wilderness and then on into the promised land 40 years later so god delivered them they were redeemed from the bondage of egypt and when they looked back to it faith was increased that god could still move in their lives in dramatic way Now we look back to a hill called Golgotha. Of course, we're reminded of what God did in Egypt, but what's more important to us is what God did on that hill that's been called Calvary as well. Golgotha means the place of a skull where the Lord Jesus Christ took upon himself the sins of humanity, and that's when we were redeemed. Now, I believe we're at a point where I need to really define this word. So let's do that. To redeem means to buy back that which has been lost, stolen, sold, or forfeited. Four things. To redeem means to buy back that which has been lost, sold, stolen, or forfeited. And really all four of those fit the scenario of our lives, because all of us were lost at one time or another, lost in our sins, lost in the delusion and deception of this world, lost with regard to who we were, what our identity was, why we're alive, what we're supposed to do in this world, how can we get back to God. We were lost, but then the Redeemer came into our lives. And then to redeem means to buy back that which has been sold, because the Bible said we are have sold ourselves for nothing. In other words, we sold our souls. We sold our, our stability mentally and our stability emotionally for temporary indulging in sin that brought havoc and chaos into our lives. We sold ourselves, but he came to buy us back. And then to redeem means to buy back that which has been stolen because the devil and his demons enter into the lives of human beings to steal, to kill, and to destroy, to steal our joy, our peace, our virtue, our morality, our strength. And Jesus comes to redeem, to restore that back to us. In fact, in the very beginning, the enemy stole from Adam his most precious possession, which was god He was made in the image of God. And his second most precious possession, which was dominion, his position of authority in this world. And the Redeemer has restored both of those things back to us. In this new covenant, who have been redeemed, we've received the image of God again, and it's working its way into our character, and we've received dominion again the very dominion that Adam lost. To redeem means to buy back that which has been lost, stolen, sold, or forfeited. In other words, you forfeit the right to a certain thing in your life. When you walked away from God in your life, you forfeited the right to have communion with God, to enter into his presence, to have a meaningful existence you forfeited that. (laughs) You counted it unimportant. But even though you gave up the most precious possessions you had or the precious potential that you had for those possessions, your Redeemer loved you enough to come into your life and bring all of that back and to restore you. Now, to be redeemed means to be loosed away from bondage, to be set free from captivity. And we were all in bondage in one way or another. Some of us were not only in bondage to sin, in bondage to the lower nature, in bondage to satanic control, we were in bondage to false religion. I was, I was raised a Roman Catholic and I met a lot of wonderful, humble, kind, loving people who loved God and loved others in the Catholic Church, but no one ever told me how to be born again. And I was bound to all the rituals and ceremonies that seem so essential when you're a Catholic, but they don't really lead you to God. And then I got involved in Eastern religions, yoga, Hinduism, Sikhism, Buddhism. I was bound by false religious ideas, but then the Redeemer came. Now, I believe in something called the law of first mention. And that is... A law, biblically, that when you find an important concept first mentioned in the Bible, many times a precedent is set or a certain foundational understanding of that concept is given. And I believe that's so in the case of redemption. The first time it's mentioned in the Bible is Genesis 48, 16. Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, is praying for his grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh, the sons of Joseph. You have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now Joseph brings his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, to Jacob, his father, their grandfather, for him to pray the Abrahamic blessing on them, which was transferable. It was a covenant relationship with Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And listen to what was spoken. Listen to the prayerful declaration. See, Jacob said so. He made a redemption proclamation over his grandsons. He said, The angel who redeemed me from all evil blessed the lads. What a powerful moment. Don't underestimate the power of laying hands on your children and on your grandchildren, and making faith proclamations over them, there's miraculous changes waiting to be released when you dare to speak. He said, "The angel who redeemed me from how much evil from all evil. Bless the lads. A precedent was set. The first time redemption is mentioned, it talks about redemption loosing the redeemed, from all evil wrought against them in life. Jacob was, in essence, saying what God has done for me, he's going to do for Ephraim and Manasseh. Think of that. Well, who is this one he referred to as the angel? Well, if you go to your Bibles, you'll see in most versions of the Bible, the word angel is capitalized because it's not a reference to an ordinary angel. Is from the Hebrew word malach that is also translated messenger. And see, it's a term that relates to the pre-incarnate Christ. See, Jesus didn't just appear on the scene around 2,000 years ago. The scripture says in Micah 5, 2, that his goings forth have been from of old, even from everlasting. Whenever God made appearances in the Old Testament, That was the pre-incarnate Christ in different forms, in different shapes. Sometimes he came in the appearance of a human being. Like, for instance, uh, when he manifested himself to Joshua, he looked like the captain of the Lord's hosts. And sometimes he appeared as a form, like a burning bush because Moses turned aside to see the burning bush, and the Bible said, the angel of the Lord spoke out of the bush and said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, if that had been an ordinary angel, that would have been a blasphemous statement to declare, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Only one could say that, and that was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who has always been triune in being. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and these three are one God. So, the angel of the Lord is the manifestation of Christ, a Christophany, they call it in the Old Testament. And one particular time that happened for Jacob, was when he wrestled with the angel of the Lord all night long, right before he went over the, the river Jabbok and was reconciled to his brother Esau. And he wrestled with the angel of the Lord all night long. And in another location, it said that he wrestled with a man. So it was an angel in the appearance of a man. It was the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ. And then about the time of the sun rising, the angel of the Lord said, Let me go, Jacob, for the day breaks. And he said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And he said, Your name shall no more be called Jacob, but Israel shall your name be. For as a prince, you have power with God and with men, and you prevail. See, Jacob didn't just wrestle with the Lord that night. He'd been wrestling with God his entire life because he'd always been trying to manipulate and control people to have his way and to get what he wanted. He did it with his brother. He took advantage of his brother when his brother was hungry, came in from hunting, and he said, give me a bowl of lentils. He said, if you'll sell me your birthright, and he said, I'm at the point of dying. What profit is my birthright to me now? And so The exchange took place. That was an evil thing that he did, taking advantage of his brother in a vulnerable moment. And then many years later, when his father Isaac was dying, he told his son Esau to go get some venison so that he could eat it and his soul could pass on to the next life. Well, after Esau left, Jacob impersonated Esau. Esau by putting lamb wool on his hands and on the back of his neck and getting a regular kind of meat, I suppose, from their herd. And he brought it in to his father as if he was Esau and said, bless me with the blessing I'm to receive. He said, your voice sounds like Jacob, but you feel like Esau because Esau was hairy and Jacob was smooth skinned. And so Isaac was fooled He was deceived and he pronounced a blessing on Jacob that should have been given to Esau. That's an evil thing to lie to your dying father. What a manipulator Jacob was. No wonder Jacob means supplanter or deceiver. But see, when he wrestled with the Lord after 20 years of exile from his homeland, his name was changed. But not only was his name changed, his nature was changed. He wasn't Jacob anymore, the deceiver, Jacob the manipulator, Jacob that was out for self, Jacob that would do anything to get his way. He was Israel, one who rules with God. He learned to let God be the supreme authority in his life. And so he declares over his grandsons, the angel redeemed me from all evil. Do you realize how much that covers? It covers the evil deeds of his own life, the ones I've just mentioned. God redeemed that because his brother Esau was angry, extremely angry with him when he found out he'd robbed him of the birthright and the blessing. And he said, I'm going to kill him. Well, the mother found out about it. And Rebekah told Jacob to go to her brother Laban and live with him for a few days in Haran, and the, the word Haran means parched. And uh, so he took off. And in fact, the father, Isaac, also told him to go and go to that region where Laban was, but he gave it a different name. He called it Pedanarim, which meant uh, a plateau. And parched, well, when I think of parched, I think of a cracked riverbed that nothing is alive in, just cracked, parched earth. And a plateau, well, that's something that's on an even level, doesn't look like it's ascending any higher. It's just level ground. As you ascend up a mountain, you reach plateaus where the ground is level. And for 20 years, Jacob went to Haran. He went to padanaram and he went to a parched place spiritually, where it didn't look like he was progressing at all. He ends up getting deceived because what you sow is what you reap. He works seven years for Rachel, the younger daughter, and Laban fools him on the marriage night. and He ends up marrying Leah, not the one he wanted to marry, but God even redeemed that because Leah gave him six sons, and one of them was Levi, and the other, another one was Judah. Levi was the forefather of the Levitical priesthood tribe. And of course, Moses and Aaron came out of the tribe of Levi, the great deliverers that brought the children of Israel out of the bondage of Egypt. Praise God. They never would have existed had not Jacob married Leah. But God redeemed that situation. And of course, another son was Judah. And out from Judah came the line that eventually brought forth the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who was called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. So that never would have happened had not Jacob made his errors that caused him to have to flee for his life. And he went to a land where they took advantage of him and fooled him and deceived him. And all this negativity but he said, the angel of the Lord redeem me from all evil. And then the family got completely dysfunctional. There were 12 sons and 11 of them plotted against Joseph to kill him. And of course, sold him into slavery. And you know the story how he got down into Egypt and Joseph was falsely accused by the captain of the guard's wife, ended up going to prison, prophesied to the butler and baker. But then Two years later, Pharaoh heard about this one in the dungeon that could interpret dreams. And he became the prime minister over all the land of Egypt and ended up bringing Jacob, his father, and all of his brothers and all of their families down to Egypt to be in a safe place during seven years of famine. No wonder Jacob could say the angel who redeemed me from all evil because all the dysfunction, all the evil, all the terrible things that happened in his life, somehow God got his fingers in it. The Redeemer got involved in it and loosed him away from the negative results and implanted in him positive outcomes from the things he had faced in life. That's the one you're serving as well. That's the one you know as well. I'm going to give you just a few more thoughts I'm going to go to the next time the word redeem appears in scripture. It's Exodus chapter six, verse six. And this is where Moses said to the children of Israel, or actually he's speaking prophetically on the Lord's behalf. God told him to tell them, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Now there's some very powerful points I need to bring out on this. To stretch means to pull beyond the normal limitations. And normally there is a limit to the way God moves in this world. There's a barrier. Isaiah called it a covering cast over all people, a veil that is spread over all nations, a barrier between the celestial world and the terrestrial world. And normally it seems like God doesn't intervene in very supernatural and powerful ways in this world, that it just moved forward by its own workings. But God stretched his arm out. In other words, he went beyond the normal limitations in intervening for human beings. And he did so to reach down into the bondage of Egypt, where there were slaves to the Egyptians, and loose them away from bondage with a series of ten judgments And then finally, Pharaoh thrust them out of Egypt. They went through the Red Sea miraculously, and God delivered them. Well, all of that is a picture of what God has done for you. Because I hear the same voice that spoke to Moses speaking to you, but instead of him stretching his arm out this way to reach down into the dilemma of the children of Israel, I hear him saying to you and to me, I will redeem you with Outstretched arms and with great judgments. The one who died on the cross stretched out his arms to assume the judgment that should have fallen on you, should have fallen on me. But instead, he took it upon himself. He said, For judgment, I am come into this world. And tell me not to praise him. If he can lift his hands for hours of agony, I can lift my hands for a few moments of ecstasy, thanking him for what he's done. And there were more judgments that fell on the day that Jesus died on the cross. The judgment of Satan took place. And there is a scripture that relates to that. John chapter 12, verses 31 and 32 and 33. He said, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. When he said, if I be lifted up, he wasn't talking about being praised and exalted. He was talking about being lifted up on a cross. He signified the type of death he would die. But he said, now is the judgment of this world. And he had to weigh between the people of this world that were contaminated with sin and enemies of God, and the one who had contaminated them, the prince of darkness. And he made a decision that the greater guilt was on the part of Satan. And so he said, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world, the ruler of this world be cast out. You may say, well, why is he still in the world? He was not cast out of his presence in this world. He was cast out of his position of dominion in this world. He's no longer the ruler of this world. Jesus is Lord of this planet. He reassumed authority here and cast him out of that position of dominion and restored dominion to us. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let the redeemed of the Lord make these kind of declarations that our Redeemer has come and restored dominion to us. He's brought us out of bondage into his freedom and his liberty. Praise God, there's so much more that needs to be said about this valuable subject. But just on the basis of what I've said in this particular episode, I believe you can live in victory all week long. And if you want to know more about your redemption rights, you should get a copy of Who Am I? Dynamic Declarations of Who You Are in Christ, the book that I've written that covers 52 of the names God has given His people, and one of them in that book is The Redeemed of the Lord.
1: Thank you for listening to Discover Your Spiritual Identity with Mike Shreve, a podcast designed to cause a spiritual awakening in your life. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can go deeper into this amazing revelation of the names God has given his people by getting your copy of Mike Shreve's book titled, Who Am I? Dynamic Declarations of Who You Are in Christ.